Tape number two, Charles Schultz, on Charles Schultz. Snoopy sending his father a Father's Day card, and apparently his father is retired now and living down in Florida. And uh, <laughs> uh, there were eight paw prints on the postcard that he was looking at. And those paw prints were just happened to be there because I was in a little department store one day in Santa Rosa, and I saw a stamp pad that had a paw print, and I thought, someday I'll find some use for this. So every now and then I, I stamp it on a pad, and hope, hoping that it will prompt some kind of idea. And this day I thought, well, this would be kind of neat. Uh, Snoopy and his brothers and sisters will send their father a Father's Day card, and they will all sign it with a paw print. So that was the last panel in the Father's Day Sunday page. There were eight paw prints across, and he was looking at it and saying, uh, how nice, they all signed it, you know. <laughs> well, uh, this is the letter which came last uh, Friday. Let's see. <clears throat> On Father's Day, I enjoyed the Peanuts cartoon where Snoopy sent a sweet little card to his father in Florida. The card bore eight doggy paw prints from the eight doggies in that litter. I wondered aloud to my son, on that Father's Day card Snoopy sent to his father, did Snoopy sign all those paw prints himself, or did he collect them from his other seven brothers and sisters? Are they real, or did Snoopy put his own paw on eight times? My son said, Mother, I find you a bit weird. <laughs> you obviously have no trouble at all envisioning a dog who writes a letter to his dog father <laughs> and mails it in the mailbox. But you do have a problem uh, <laughs> with how that dog gathered paw prints from his brothers and sisters. Uh -huh. Now that worries me. <laughs> uh -huh. My son then went on to carry the whole thing to ridiculous lengths. Snoopy, the dog war ace, the dog with the little birds parading after him, we ended up laughing our heads off. Is that bad or good when you have us believing in Snoopy? Half believing? <laughs> I thought that was a neat letter. <laughs> Reminds me of the one that I received uh, when Charlie Brown was reading to his little sister Sally about the fight between Goliath and David, and Charlie Brown reads, uh, and the fight ended, the battle ended, when David hit Goliath in the head with a stone. And his little sister Sally, who's been listening to this, said, I wonder what Goliath's mother thought about that. And I received a, a, a nice letter from some woman who tr explained it to me by saying, well, Goliath uh, probably deserved it. I'm sure he hung around with the wrong crowd most of his life. <laughs> and his mother probably wasn't much of a mother anyway. So. <laughs> Have you ever walked through a parking lot going to a uh, supermarket or going to the mall or something like that and walk between two cars and it seems safe enough until just as you get between the two cars, suddenly some dog who's been lying in the back seat leaps up, you know, and throws himself against the window and barks furiously, and you jump about 10 feet in the air. Uh, it's a terrible feeling, but uh, there's a cartoon idea there someplace. And I read in the paper the other day that uh, the baseball players are now signing their autographs and getting paid pretty, pretty well for it. Joe DiMaggio... I see in the, the last get-together is being paid, uh, or is charging $30 for his autograph. 
Ted Williams charges $25. Maury Wills charges $5. There's a cartoon idea. There's some place for you, too. And have you ever been either to the Ice Follies or a hockey game, and in between the periods, everyone sits who hasn't uh, gone up to get popcorn or something like that and watches the Zamboni go around and around and around. I've always said that there are three things in life that are fun to watch. A fire in a fireplace, a running stream, and the Zamboni going around and around and around. And uh, there's a cartoon idea there someplace too. And then when you go to a concert, I can always be assured of thinking of some kind of cartoon idea if I go to a concert. Uh, we went to one last year. Uh, the woman was about, uh, it was a pianist, soloist, and she came walking across the stage when it was her turn to play, and she had them on the most beautiful gown you had ever seen, a big, flowing, beautiful gown. And I turned to Jeannie, and I said, I think the gown costs more than the piano. Uh, anyway... And she was to play that night Ravel's Concerto for Left Hand. Now, there's a cartoon idea there for you, too, if you think about it enough. In fact, the one I did was a Sunday page, uh, just to show you what you can get out of these things. Peppermint Patty and Marcy are always going to concerts, and every time they go, it seems as if they play Peter and the Wolf, which just drives them crazy. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this time, as the lady, she, the lady walks out and Patty turns to Marcy and says, I bet the gown costs more than the piano. And so she's playing, and Patty says, Marcy, what is it that she's, she's playing? And Marcy said she's playing the Ravel Concerto for left hand. And Patty uh, cups her hands up like this, and she says, if you use both hands, man, we'll all get home faster. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> now, I realize that there's probably not one person here who is interested in drawing comic strips, and that doesn't bother them. In fact, that's kind of nice not to knowing that there's no competition. But I think there is a, a good parallel between some of the things that you may be doing, at least along the, the, the range of creativity, and those of you who may be interested in, in funny writing or humorous writing. Uh, there's a man someplace in the country who conducts a business of giving advice to prospective cartoonists, uh, he calls it um, helping them create and develop their features. And he tells them something which took me a long time to discover, but I find to be exactly the wrong approach. It's not, <laughs> it's not uh, often that you can find somebody who's doing something exactly wrong. But he tells people that you should examine the, the things that are now being run. You should examine the comic pages and see that... Uh, there are cats that are popular, and there are mice that are popular, there are married couples, and look around and see uh, what is really uh, empty in the field, and then just kind of fill that gap. The trouble with that is that you end up drawing something that you don't know anything about. Uh, it took me a long time to discover that the ideas come first, uh, simply the way some of these things that I was talking about just now and, and uh, some of the things that Ray Bradbury was talking about last night. The ideas come first because the ideas are you. And it is from all of these ideas which are distinctly you, because obviously uh, you are different from every, anybody else in this world. And the ideas come from you, and as you develop these ideas over a long period of time, and most cartoonists want to know how many 
what is the least amount of strips that I can draw and send into a syndicate to become rich and famous? Uh, they don't want to draw three or four hundred strips and then throw them all away and start all over again. But it is from this multitude of ideas that eventually uh, characters will come. And then, fortunately, as you go on uh, from these very characters, uh, will then uh, come ideas. And I think this is uh, the way it, it really has to work. The, the characters cannot come first unless you just happen to stumble across a Popeye or something like that. But even Popeye didn't come along until uh, uh, Thimble Theater had run for a long time with the Castor Oil family. And, and generally that has been it with uh, most comic strip characters. Now, it occurred to me when I was coming down here that I would try to surprise you with something a little bit different, and I think and hope that uh, I and we have. My 40th anniversary of drawing these little kids is coming up next year, and United Feature Syndicate in New York is trying to do all sorts of things to advertise and promote the fact that we've been going for 40 years. Um, let's see, I think we're going to be part of the Super Bowl halftime show uh, in January, and uh, lots of strange things like that. Knott's Berry Farm is building a, a big park in Minneapolis in this mall that they are doing, lots of strange things. But one of the things that they wanted to do was to create a biography that could be sold next year. And so uh, they have hired this wonderful young lady to do this biography of me. Now, please forgive me. I am not doing this uh, out of self-promotion. I just am hoping that it is something that will be of interest to you because I doubt very much if the biographer and the subject uh, has ever appeared on the same platform before. And I'm hoping that this will be of interest to those of you who might uh, want to do this kind of thing sometime. So I'm going to present to you uh, a young lady uh, named Rita Grimsley Johnson. Her husband, incidentally, does a strip called Arlo and uh, Janice for uh, Newspaper Enterprise Association. So she is well acquainted with uh, the difficulty of drawing a comic strip every day and every Sunday. Uh, Rita does a four times a week column for the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And uh, this column is then distributed by the Scripps Howard organization to 300 newspapers throughout the country. In 1982, she won the American Society of Newspaper Editors Award for commentary. And in 1983, this really impresses me, she won the Ernie Pyle Award. Both she and I are uh, great admirers of Ernie Pyle, of course. In 1986, she won the National Headlighter Award for commentary also. So it is my great pleasure to present to you now uh, Rita Grimsley Johnson, and after she is through speaking, then I think we will both stand here side by side and talk about anything that you would care to talk about. Incidentally, her uh, columns published uh, several years ago have been collected in this book, America's Faces, and it is on sale out uh, in the other room. Rita. pretty hard to follow the, the flag motherhood and apple pie but I'll, I'll give it a shot I think I knew I had arrived as a serious journalist a couple of years ago when I was asked to judge the world chicken beauty contest in Somerville Tennessee that's the kind of thing that columnists get asked to do um, especially columnists in the south where there's something strange always going on 
Some, an interviewer once from New York once asked Flannery O'Connor, why do you Southern writers always write about such weirdos? To which she replied, well, down here we're still able to recognize them. <laughs> Having just gone and witnessed the Sultis Day Parade, I, I feel that comment is very appropriate. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in California during the last year because of the book and have really enjoyed it. But I didn't always get along so well when I'd come to California. For one thing, I, I tried not to talk because whenever I opened my mouth, people would start imitating me, giving me their worst imitation of a southern accent. They always sounded like Sally Field and Norma Ray to me. It was also, in 1984, when I covered the Olympics for Scripps Howard, I was in L.A. for five weeks, and they were at the time having a contest for a city song. New York has a song, San Francisco has a song, so L.A. wanted a song. And I'd been there five weeks, and I was very tired, and I was out of sorts, and it'd been smoggy and pretty crowded and miserable. So the song that I wrote was not very, it, w it was meant in fun, but uh, people five years later are still writing me about, about the song. <laughs> it went something like this. <laughs> Oh, beautiful but smoggy skies where nature wastes no rain, where purple hair provokes no stare and gender is not plain. Los Angeles, Los Angeles, there is no hope for thee. If things go good and as they should, you'll fall into the sea. <laughs> I can't imagine why people took offense at that, can you? <laughs> when the column started going pretty well a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of editors from other parts of the country would use the column. In fact, it had more appeal, it seemed to me, in the Northeast than anywhere else. It seemed as if a Mickey, Tennessee dateline, for instance, would sound real exotic. And so every now and then I'd uh, field questions from an editor from some other region, and they would always ask, why, why do you work out accounts, Tennessee? And then I would have to explain a little bit about my office. It's in a cinder block building next to Monty's service center. It stays hot most of the time, but you have to leave the door shut anyway because of the paper mill smell. The air conditioner sort of rumbles like a freight train, so when the phone rings, I turn it off very quickly. And there's no bathroom, so I go down the road a piece to R&B barbecue, and I hate to be a freeloader, so I get a glass of iced tea, which, of course, begins sort of a vicious cycle. But <laughs> But anyway, it was, I was sitting in that office when uh, the publisher called and asked if I would be interested in writing a book about Charles Schultz. And I remember I jumped up and shut the door because Monty was using his pneumatic lug wrench that day. And I turned off the air conditioner and I came back to the phone and I said, certainly, certainly. <laughs> so they sent me to Santa Rosa sort of on trial to see if if we'd get along and it made me feel pretty much at ease the first night that I met Sparky and Jeannie because they're both so nice and and they put you at ease but also because Sparky seemed a, a real fan of southern literature and it was one thing I knew a little about at least so we we talked about that by the end of the next day I felt real good about things and he knew absolutely everything there is to know about me <laughs> 
Southerners are, are not like people anywhere else. They, you ask them how to get to the post office, and they don't say go three blocks and turn left. They tell you what happened in every building along the way. And it's a region of storytellers. Even the music, the country music and the blues and all of that, some of the great, greatest song titles in the world are on country music songs. I saw one the other day on a jukebox I'd never seen before. If you don't leave me alone, I'll find someone who will. <laughs> but at any rate, I'm afraid that I spill my guts to him a lot more freely than he did to me. <laughs> but we worked things out. I've been a, a reporter for 15 years, and I had a few qualms about doing an authorized account of anybody. But his honesty was unbelievable in his forthrightness and he didn't stand to gain anything from being honest about things and he had the he had the right to ch by the contract to change anything he wanted to which also gave me some pre-writing jitters but i decided finally that i would just write it the way i would have anything else and see what happened well what happened was that he didn't change anything that might make him look bad or he might not have agreed with my analysis in many areas. He left all of that alone. The only thing he would ever take issue with was something that made somebody else look a little bad. I'll give you an example. He may get mad at me for this, but he talked about playing golf once with Alan Shepard, and I said, oh, yeah, he's the one that hit the ball on the moon. And he said, Sparky said, yeah, that was the only good drive he ever made. <laughs> And, of course, I thought, what a great line, started writing it down. He said, no, no, I don't want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> but that was the only kind of thing that we, we had any kind of problems with. I had always had problems reading biographies because they started, he was born, and then you had to plow through several generations of ancestors before you got to what you were reading the biography for, and that was what the person was famous for and, and what he does or what she does. And so I tried to use a little bit of a different approach. The book really begins with the birth of Peanuts, not the birth of Sparky Schultz. The birth of Peanuts in 1950. And it's more like spending the day with him. There's, he reminisces, and we do go into his family and background and some of the special moments in his past. But it's, it's really more, I like to think, an exploration of the creative process. The most hated question, I think, by any creative person is, where do you get your ideas? Because there is no neat answer to that. But I like to think that the entire book, taken, if you read the whole book, that it might address that, where he gets his ideas. Uh, gets his ideas from his life, and, and all of that becomes clear, I think, if you read it. I really can't think of anything else. I, I think we should probably answer your questions. I appreciate you having me here today. Thank you. We were introduced, incidentally, over the telephone by our editor in New York who had Rita call me on the phone, and I'm sure you can see just by listening to her that uh, as soon as I heard that wonderful voice, I said, by all means, send her out. <laughs> it also helped to see her photograph in the back of this book jacket, <laughs> which I like too, so 
Is there anything that uh, we could talk about? Yes. When did I first become syndicated? Well, I, after World War II, uh, got a job with Art Instruction Incorporated, which is the correspondence school that advertises with the Draw Me ads. And I worked for them for five years. And uh, I'm always astounded that people somehow think that these correspondence courses are a racket. There's nothing uh, more of a racket uh, with a correspondence course than there is going to a residence school, having the instructor come in, put the model up, and say, draw that, and then have him disappear and not come back uh, until the class is over. That's what I call a racket. But uh, anyway, I worked for them for five years, and while I was working with them, I had time when I was not doing the regular lessons to send in cartoons, and I used to take the train down to Chicago and get rejected and go back home again and do wander around and visit those different syndicates. And one day I, uh, I sold some panel cartoons to our local paper in St. Paul, and then eventually I sold a few to the Saturday Evening Post, and I was getting better all the time. And finally one day, uh, somebody at United Feature Syndicate said, well, sure, come to New York and let's talk about it. And we started in um, the fall of 1950 with seven newspapers. And now we have, uh, oh, I think about 2,040 or something like that. We have more newspapers than any other newspaper feature in the history of the business. And we're in the Guinness Book of Records, which is kind of cute, I think. <laughs> uh, that's a short story, but actually it took a long time. Yes? Uh, <laughs> well, it would probably be a vanity press, I think, don't you? <laughs> uh -huh, yeah. Yes? I think what Gary Larson does on the far side is, is very difficult, and I admire him for doing it because Gary Larson with this format does not have the, uh, uh, the freedom to compare, well, if you compare it with boxing, to land a few light lefts on Monday, Tuesday, and then a roundhouse right on Wednesday. He has to land roundhouse rights every day, and it is not easy, which is probably why he's taking the year off. But. Um, uh, there's a formula to what Gary does, and the formula is what they call far-out humor. It really is uh, it's not as far out in cartooning as uh, has been written. Uh, there was a man named Tom Henderson who did a lot of far-out cartoons years ago for the Post and for Colliers, and you all remember, I'm sure, the, the cartoons of Virgil Parch. If ever there was one who did far-out humor, it was certainly Virgil Parch, and uh, many of the New Yorker cartoonists. So what Gary Larson does, I think, is a perfect example not only of a, of a consistency of, of this type of humor, but I think it is his drawing that saves him. Drawing is infinitely more important than uh, uh, we think, and his drawing is funny. He draws funny people, and I like his funny dogs with the eyes that are close together, you know. Uh, uh, he's very good. Yeah. Yes? Uh, the question was about our licensing. Uh, 
the first thing we ever did, I did a special set of drawings of just some other kids after the peanut strip had started for some chocolate milk company. And uh, then later on, I think our first licensed products were the little plastic dolls that were about this high. They were put out by Hungerford Plastics. And uh, I think there were six of them in the set. They lasted a few years, and then the man gave up the business, and the dolls simply disappeared. They are, they are now what we like to call collector's items. But we certainly did not rush out in those first few years to try to sell uh, licensees on the Peanuts characters. In fact, I think it was 10 years before we did any licensing at all. And every licensee that ever put out a product uh, was a licensee who came to us. We did not go out and promote it like uh, a lot of people are doing these days. The Peanuts comic strip was not there to create products. It was there to help editors sell newspapers. And uh, I think you will find that Disney does a whole lot more licensing than we do. And they don't even have a character who talks. So, <laughs> uh -huh. Anything else? Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. I draw every strip and I think of every idea. As soon as somebody said, uh, says to me, uh, I think I've got something funny you might want to hear about. I said, don't tell me, because if you tell me, I won't use it. I never use anybody else's ideas, except uh, I've used 16 of them that my own kids gave me down through the last 39 years. But 16 ideas won't get you very many places. But no, I think of all the ideas and I do all the drawing myself because I feel this is what I do the same way as some people do watercolors or play the piano or something like that. Uh, yeah? How about the movie scripts and the uh, stage plays? Do you write those also? I write all of the, uh, let's see, I think we've done four animated movies. We've done two live action movies for television. Uh, incidentally, it's, I'd like to have you meet my daughter Jill, who was the star of the girl in the red truck. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> And way in the back is my son, Monty, who now has his novel at Viking. <laughs> uh -huh. And my wife, Jeannie. Please stand, Jeannie. <laughs> Jeannie produced the documentary uh, on... Um, uh, what is it they called? Canine Companions, about uh, dogs that are trained to help people who were handicapped, and it won two very cherished awards when it came out. So Jeannie's been doing good things, too. Now, where was I? <laughs> we're talking about scripts. Well, I wrote two um, live-action scripts, and then I've written all of the television shows except this recent historical series. I had nothing to do with that. That got totally out of hand, and uh, I had no time to, to do any research or anything on that, and so that was all done by... Lee Mendelson and Bill Melendez. I can take neither the credit nor the blame for that. But our next television show is called Why, Charlie Brown, Why? And it's about a little girl who sits behind Linus in school and uh, uh, gets leukemia. Uh, the cancer people have been asked us after us for about three years to do something along this line, and we're finally able to put together some kind of a story. It's a very positive story, and I think uh, it will. it has the possibilities of doing being the best one of the best things we've ever done. But again, I write all of those stories. I don't draw them because all the drawing is done in Hollywood by animators, and I am not an animator. 
Anything else? Yeah. My typical work day is to get to the studio at 9 o'clock and go through the mail. I think one of the best things about this job is just uh, is the mail. I, I love getting letters from all the people, and it's even fun to get nasty letters now and then. <laughs> uh, and then uh, if I have no ideas at all, eventually comes the time when you have to sit down with a blank piece of paper and start uh, little conversations with yourself, making what you hope are funny little sketches, and sometimes immediately an idea comes to mind. Other times you sit there all day long and you can't think of anything, and I fall asleep and I wake up, and uh, it's a day wasted. But I know that maybe tomorrow I'll think of the best thing that I ever thought of. And that's the way the day goes. I like to draw six daily strips in two days and then devote one day on a Sunday page and then try to lap myself, always trying to get ahead. It's like running, it's the squirrel running in the cage, you know, it never ends, over and over and over. <laughs> right here, yeah. Well, I'm not pig then because I think I look kind of nice. <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, I wouldn't have the slightest idea. Like you said, uh, I think you have to be all of the characters. Otherwise, you can't, uh, you can't create them. And they certainly are not patterned after anyone except names. Almost all of them are named after friends of mine, but certainly not, not the uh, personalities, no. <laughs> yeah? No, the greeting cards are all done uh, at Hallmark. The drawings are mine. The drawings are lifts from the comic strips. They have to search through uh, all of the drawings that I have done. We provide them now with huge volumes. Uh, all the licensees get these volumes, which have drawings of all of the characters in them, and they have to search through and find just the right drawing that will be suitable for a greeting card. But they think of the ideas, and I must say that uh, I envy some of the ideas that they think of. They're the only licensee that keeps coming up with lines which I wish I had thought of. Uh, I, and we... Uh, were the best-selling best thing that Hallmark has ever had. And they didn't even want them at the beginning. We started with four cards, which were, uh, were the idea of a young man named Arnold Shapiro. And after I drew the four cards for them, he knew where they were to be sold in Kansas City, and he knew which stores in Kansas City were the ones that were rated. So he went around and bought the cards so that they would get good ratings. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yes. Does my mood affect which character I am? I suppose it's one of those things that I never think about, so I really don't know. But I will admit that some of your best ideas come when you're feeling the lowest. Sure. Happiness is not funny. People are always writing to me and saying, uh, why can't you let Charlie Brown kick the football? Why can't you let him meet the little red-haired girl? And um, why can't he win a ball game? Or why can't uh, Peppermint Patty get an A in school? It would be so inspiring for other children. But... Uh, <laughs> But it wouldn't be funny, would it? No, hap happiness is wonderful. I think we all deserve to be happy, but happiness is not very funny. But losing is funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not right away, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, right here, please. No. I've never had what you call a dangerous dry spell. What I have, and I l have learned to recognize it, and I think it's the most dangerous thing of all, is hitting a low point where you are unable 
to recognize or to, uh, well, just, just to simply to tell if what you have thought is funny or not. And uh, I've often wanted to collect strips that I've seen in newspapers which were simply not funny. The cartoonist had no idea when he was drawing it that what he had thought of was not funny at all, but he didn't know it. And that's what worries me sometimes, this inability to judge whether something is funny or not. And this happens to all of us. Fortunately, not uh, too often, but I, I think you become professional, that's all. Mm -hmm. No, I never, uh, uh, I never use anyone as a sounding board. I don't want to know. If it's not funny, I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, besides, I don't think you can trust people. Uh, if they like you, they're going to be nice to you, and if they don't like you, then you shouldn't show it to them anyway. No, I, I never do that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I was reading in the Chronicle last month up in San Francisco that Kurt Vonnegut had been there and had given a speech and he charged them $10,000 to tell them that the world is completely hopeless and that <laughs> novel writing is uh, going downhill, there will never be any good novels again. And I thought, gosh, I'm coming down here and I'm talking for nothing and I'm... <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think the world is hopeless, and I still think that happiness is a warm puppy. <laughs> uh, where did Rita go? Why don't you ask Rita something? Otherwise she gets so lonely. Southern <laughs> girls get lonely fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was only given about a year to complete everything, the writing and all the interviews. And I would come, I would, I would travel to Santa Rosa and stay six or seven days. And I would spend all day long with Sparky. And usually he, he was ahead on his drawing and, and very generous in his time. And we would just sit there all day and have conversations. And then we would uh, go out in the evening and I would be around his family and I just really got a good taste of what his life is like. And then I did several, I went to St. Paul and, and talked to some of the people he knew there. And, uh, but I was given, I felt like a real great shot at getting to ask him everything I wanted to, to ask. As I said before, he was, he was honest in his replies. So it, it, I don't see how people do biographies without these unauthorized biographies that are so popular right now i mean that must be that must be quite a job because <laughs> i had plenty of questions for him yes <laughs> she she asked if it was hard to stitch, stick to the facts and not wander off and do something completely fictional in writing a biography. Well, I've never done any fiction. I'm, you know, I'm a reporter, and, and facts are what I rely on. So, no, I wasn't tempted also. I mean, you see for yourselves what, what I had to work with. I mean, here is, is 
the premier cartoonist of our time, and I have a, a straight shot at him. I can ask him anything, and I can probe and 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 look at his bookshelves and talk to his friends and and talk to his family. And uh, no, I wasn't tempted to to go in. Though he may disagree, he may think I went into fiction. <laughs> yes. Well, it's not an as-told-to book either. It, it, all the observations are mine uh, about the strip and about the man. And it was a different sort of assignment in that he reviewed it, but uh, the conclusions are mine. In fact, he doesn't like to talk much about individual characters and what things mean. I mean, he draws it. He shouldn't have to do that. So uh, it, was, it was just a reporting job. And I think my voice is in, in the book, too. Uh-huh. Are there any stories about photographs you're going to use in the book? The photographs? Well, again, there was a real generous supply, a wonderful old black and whites. And he had a relative. Was it an uncle who was a photographer? Or yeah. There were all these great old black and whites from his, his uh, teenage years, wonderful pictures, black and white, of his grandmother, Sophia, and just a wealth of, of good photographs to choose from. In fact, the, the terrible thing was is that I didn't have final say on the photographs. The, they did that in New York, and I wish the photo insert section could have been a lot larger because there were so many to choose from. Talk about grandma. Yeah. I'm glad Rita brought up Sophia, my grandmother. Uh, <laughs> she was the one that used to go down in the basement of the house where we lived, and as the stairway went down, there was an open spot and a pillar, and it was just about... Uh, the same width as a hockey goal, and I would give her a broom, and then I would shoot tennis balls at her, <laughs> and, uh, uh, which is pretty good for a 65-year-old woman, I, and I have said that I like to think she made a lot of great saves. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to call the book Grandma Was a Goalie, but they wouldn't go along with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was amazed when I first read uh, the, uh, the initial manuscripts that Rita had done uh, when you sit and talk with somebody day after day after day, uh, suddenly I would read something and I'd think, how did she remember that? Uh, I didn't think it was that important, but uh, uh, I, I learned what a, what a wonderful listener that she is. And uh, she just grabbed on to all sorts of things, and she has a marvelous way of turning a phrase to make this book, uh, I think, sparkle. At least I hope it does. <laughs> Oh, I drew all the time when I was uh, a little kid. I know that growing up in grade school, I could always draw at least as well as uh, maybe one or two others in school. I, I, I can't remember anybody who could draw any better, but I, I don't consider myself certainly a great artist by any means. But I always liked to draw. I didn't realize at first how important drawing was. And Rita tells in her book about... Um, my being shown uh, a drawing that a cousin had made when I was, oh, I suppose I was about eight years old, and he had drawn a man sitting on a log, and this, he lived down in uh, Wisconsin in, in the country. And I remember the, the adults looking at it and admiring this wonderful drawing, and I looked at it and I, I thought, I could do that. What's so great about that, you know? <laughs> and, but it never occurred to me that I could draw these things. But, the, but I loved the comic strips, and, which is what made me 
so delighted to listen to Ray last night talk about uh, Buck Rogers and Prince Valiant and all of those wonderful strips. And he didn't mention Roy Crane, who's the hero of us all. Uh, I think um, Roy Crane, who used to draw wash tubs in Captain Easy, was the best of everybody. And uh, even Milt Kniff, who drew Terry and the Pirates, uh, admired the work of Roy Crane. So I copied all of those people, and that was my one ambition, was just someday to draw a comic strip and hope that it would be as good as Crazy Cat. Uh, that was my ambition. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of uh, discussion about the strip and how it's progressed and changed and uh, different periods and how the characters have changed, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Uh -huh. uh, sometimes, so many times it would be, we would be walking to and from the studio and the ice rink and or driving in the car to go see a movie or you know, just having discussions that I got a lot from. So it wasn't all on tape, but a lot of it was. It helped. Is there a story about that, you mean? Why? I guess it was just Barnaby's idea. I don't know who drew that. That's what we call a knockoff. And, uh, <laughs> usually we uh, send a cease and desist letter to people who draw things like that <laughs> immediately. <laughs> In October. Uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> this is the cover. This is a little excerpt book for the book fairs. But that's how it'll look. Okay. Did you have a question? How many languages? Well, one so far. I hope many more. <laughs> and is the strip published in, in, uh, around the world? Oh, yes. The strip is published in, as far as I know, every country that buys comic strips. Incidentally, there will be another book published in the, uh, in the fall. Maybe it might not make it. There's a man named Giovanni Tremblay from Italy, and he is putting together a coffee table-sized book which will be published first in Europe. And in, in all sorts of languages, it will sell for about $60.00. And then it will eventually, we hope, get its way over here. But so there'll be these two books celebrating the 40th anniversary, but they're not at all alike. Uh, Giovanni's book concentrates more on the the strip itself, and it has a few essays. And he's asked my son Monte to do a special essay on Charlie Brown himself, which I am waiting anxiously to read. <laughs> yeah. Has there ever been a problem about humor being lost in translation? If there is, I wouldn't have any idea what it is. Uh, I think there's nothing that would inhibit you more than to sit and worry whether or not people in, in other countries are going to understand something. Uh, incidentally, you may be surprised to know that our biggest uh, country client is Japan. We've been big in Japan for years. Uh, why, I don't know. I, I simply don't know why they like, like this. <laughs> Baseball, yes. <laughs> No. No, the original children, I think, just came out of uh, a pattern of drawing characters, ones that I had done for this St. Paul Pioneer Press series, 
and for the Saturday Evening Post. You just find as you draw over and over and over that certain characters simply work. I knew I wanted a Charlie Brown. And there was a young friend of mine who worked at the correspondence school with me whose name was Charlie Brown. And when I came back from New York with the contract, I asked him if I could use his name for the character. And I remember him walking across the room from where his desk was and looking down at it and saying, oh, is that Charlie Brown? He says, I was hoping I would look more like Steve Kenyon. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Right now, the originals are, I would say, about this long. Uh, I think they're six inches high by about this long. I draw a lot larger than some of the more modern cartoonists. I'm astounded at how small, for instance, Lynn Johnston draws uh, for better or for worse. And even Calvin and Hobbes is drawn quite small. I don't know why they draw that tiny. I, I, I like to have room to throw the pen around. And all The Sunday pages, of course, are quite, quite large, but that's a whole different story. Well, Snoopy didn't start off to be a beagle. He was just a cute little dog, and I had to draw a dog that did not look like the dog in Blondie or the dog in Napoleon or all of these other dogs. And he was patterned a little bit after a dog named Spike that I had who was not a beagle but who had black ears and a spot on his back and all of that. And, of course, Snoopy...